Hello and welcome back to TRSI, The Right Side. I am, you know, I, I hope at this stage that I'm Michael Dwyer. And today I am, as I always say, very happy, but I really am very happy to be joined by Dr. Anthony Daniels, who you will probably better know as Theodore Dalrymple, a name, I believe, which was chosen because it, it sounded as dyspeptic uh, sort of curmudgeonly type is the, the author could think of. I first came across Theodore Dalrymple, oh, I think probably the first time was in the Salisbury Review, but the first time I in substantially was reading the City Journal, and we'll put a link up, I'll ask Gary to put a link up, and you can still get a lot of the work is available, a lot of essays work available in City Review. Many, many books have uh, ensued. Uh, Dr. Daniels is a, a psychiatrist by training, but retired now, and a man of heterodox opinion. Is that, would you say that's fair, Tony? Uh, well, I suppose it, uh, no man is heterodox to himself. No. <laughs> that, would, that would be pathological. <laughs> I'm not sure whether it would be possible. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I, I suppose my views are often heterodox, but uh, I don't set out to be heterodox. I uh, uh, set out to be uh, to to express the truth as I see it, and if it's heterodox, so be it, and if it's orthodox, so be it. So let's kick off. Yeah, and, 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 and I say that flippantly because yeah, it's important that I suppose to understand this is not. A, it's not about just being. It's not about being contrarian. It's about seeing the seeing the world as as you see it and telling the truth about it, rather than to simply being complicit, which is rather maybe the pathology, if I use use that word again, of the age. I think one of the, the one of the first pieces I read of yours was somebody sent to me, which I think was the first piece you wrote for the City Journal, which was entitled "The Knife Went In." Yes. And uh, you you have written a lot about crime. And yes. it's a, and I, so let's kick off with what would on the face of it appear, and certainly to many of my friends who work in the poverty industry would be shocked by the, the, the idea that poverty does not cause crime. Would it, is that a mischaracterization of your position? Uh, no, it wouldn't be a mischaracterization. I mean, uh, I had an illumination once, and which was that the uh, fundamental cause of crime is the decision to commit it. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and indeed, there is no crime unless someone uh, decides to commit it. Of course, it is true that there is a statistical relationship within any society, within any society, any given society, uh, between poverty and uh, crime. So that uh, in almost all, uh, all the societies that I know anything about, um, it is poor people who uh, commit more crimes. It's also true, incidentally, which lots of people don't seem to be able to grasp, that most of the victims of crime are also poor. Mm -hmm. um, and since there are many more victims than there are uh, pe uh, perpetrators, it follows that if you don't deal properly with the perpetrators, you're uh, creating many more victims. But there is so. Uh, but between societies, there's no. You can't say that the poorer society, the more crime. And if you, neither geographically nor temporarily. So if you look at Britain, for example, when it was very, very much poorer. 
when poverty was really very severe for, for many people, uh, there was much, much less crime than there is now. Uh, and of course, people who try to preserve the idea that poverty is the source of crime say, well, in the old days, uh, there wasn't anything for people to steal. But there's always something for people to steal. Mm -hmm. And the marginal value of whatever is uh, uh, stolen in a very poor society is high. Um, so, uh, but anyway, I, I think mm -hmm. the, that people take a kind of statistical generalization at this very moment to, to mean that there is a, a, a um, that there's a causative relationship. But that's an elementary um, error, in my opinion. I remember some years ago reading an, uh, an economic analysis of the communities in Ireland that had the lowest available cash income. Yes. And one of, the, I think, the groups that possibly had the lowest available cash income weren't people who were unemployed living in, in cities, but actually small farmers living, I think, in Cavanagh and Monaghan. People who were living at 20 acres and a couple of sheep had almost no disposable income. It was worth observing that they had also no crime yeah. and tended to produce much better outcomes for their children yes. than people who are comparatively, if you're talking about uh, available assets of you know, disposable income, uh, they yes. tended to do rather better with their children. In that discussion, I remember at, at a, talking to people, it seemed to me, and I don't think, would you think that there's anything to this? That rather than saying that there is a, this, that there is a causative, direct causative affair, but rather those choices, that, for example, we say that poverty causes crime, poverty causes ill health, poverty makes you fat. Because if you certainly look in the Western world, people who are my size tend to be poor rather than rich, yeah. which is something of an inversion from, his, from history. Yeah. Um, but rather than to say that it is poverty that causes these things, but rather... It, it, the decisions that make you fat or the decisions that make you unhealthy or the decisions that make you fail at education are the same kinds of processes or decisions will also make you poor. Uh, yes, of course, I don't want to deny the hardship of real poverty uh, or even relative poverty. I mean, I would much rather have been born uh, prosperous than, um, than poor. So I don't want to say that there are no difficulties for poor people. That would be callous. Um, but it's certainly true that, uh, uh, that uh, nevertheless, the decisions that people take are what determine their, their fate. I had a debate in, in Britain once with a, with a journalist called Polly Toynbee. I don't know whether you've Oh, I know Polly well. I avoided her articles in The, in the, in, in the Guardian on a daily basis. I haven't met many people who've started one and finished one, but, <laughs> but, anyway, but anyhow, I was in a debate with her. I can't remember the exact, uh, uh, the exact title, but I pointed out that The Guardian uh, had uh, fairly recently um, run an interesting article about the household wealth of people in Britain broke broken down not by social class or employment, but by their religious affiliation, mm -hmm. which was an interesting thing to do. Yes. And the richest two groups were first the Jews and then the Sikhs. Right. And the history of those two groups was rather similar. They came as immigrants. They were not entirely welcome, but mm -hmm. 
on the other hand, they were not subject to any really vicious um, uh, discrimination, and there was no legal discrimination. And within a generation, they went from being the poorest one or two generations went from being the poorest group amongst the poorest groups who arrived with nothing they went to being uh, rich and not only rich but highly educated and and participating in um, culture and so forth and uh, Polly Toynbee said in reply to this and I said I'm sure that Polly Toynbee wouldn't want to say that there were that either the Jews or the Sikhs were involved in any kind of conspiracy to deny advantages to other people and mm. of course she didn't want to say that to do her justice but she said what you have to remember is that immigrants are often uh, enterprising and hard-working people and I said yes that is my point <laughs> yeah well kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. and uh, and that these hard-working people who more or less maintained their families had an attitude to education which was positive and believed in hard work and personal Mm. responsibility uh, they got on so that established that the society was a reasonably not completely but a reasonably open one and that what is preventing other people from advancing in their lives is not any great injustice, but what is going on in their own minds and their own attitudes. And um, uh, that seems to me uh, very important. There are what, in in a different context, Blake calls the mind-forged manacles. Mm -hmm. And that is what holds uh, people back, particularly in Britain. And if your attitude is that, I don't know whether you remember a pop song that started, we don't want no education. We yes. don't want no fort control. Well, if that's your attitude, you can't subsequently um, complain very much that uh, that your employment history isn't very glorious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when I say what, what I'm saying about this, the decision making, it's not. I I, I I don't want to mischaracterize myself in the sense that, that it's a, a lack, a sort of victim blaming or a lack of compassion, but rather to get to the point that official Ireland or official Britain because the policies when it comes to addressing deprivation and poverty across the Western world tend to be fairly similar based on similar assumptions is that we're not helping people. In fact, if you're being terribly cynical, at times it can almost feel like there are a certain group of politicians who are perfectly happy to have this client-patron relationship where people have been told they have no agency and they must remain dependent because their situation is almost hopeless. Until, of course, the politicians come to save them, yes. which they some mysteriously they never do. So, I mean, I had a kind of clinical experience in this. I mean, my attitude to drug addiction was uh, was that it was, as you would say, heterodox, uh, because... Uh, the official line now is that it, it's an illness and nothing uh, but an illness. It's the same as, shall we say, Parkinson's disease or, or multiple sclerosis. It's something that just happens to you. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, ob- and, and you can see this on the website of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which uh, in the United States, which has a, a very large um, budget, research budget, 
And that's what it says. It's just a chronic relapsing brain disease and nothing else. And this is obvious rotten nonsense. And if I point out that, if I pointed out that uh, drug addiction was something that was under people's control, it was actually something that they chose. It wasn't something that was, that just came out of the sky for them. Um, and, and it's very obvious if you take heroin, for example, most heroin addicts take heroin on and off for at least 18 months before they become physically addicted. If you look at what it takes to become a heroin addict, there's a lot to learn. You have to mm -hmm. learn where to get the drug, how to prepare it. You have to overcome the inhibition against injecting yourself. Most people don't really want to inject no. themselves with needles. And then you have to learn to overlook the, uh, the unpleasant side effects. It's obvious that for whatever reason, people who become addicted to heroin, the majority of them, the vast majority of them, actually want to be addicted. It's the way of life that they're actually seeking. And after all, no one could say that, that people don't know anymore what being a heroin addict entails. I mean, everyone knows what it is. They may know nothing at all uh, about anything else, but they will know that. So it's simply, it's simply false. Now, if you say this, it's assumed that what you are saying to drug addicts is, depart my sight uh, and I don't want anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're just being hard-hearted and, um, and censorious. And there's nothing worse in the modern world than being censorious. And there's no crime worse than censoriousness mm -hmm. in the modern world. But I would take the view, uh, and as I'm sure you would too, that, um, that we are all in need of understanding because we are none of us perfect. As Dr. Chesable says, uh, charity, Miss Prism, charity, we are none of us perfect. <laughs> I myself am peculiarly susceptible to drafts. <laughs> More so, in one piece of work in that play than in anything that has ever been written, by the way, I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about that uh, play, which I which is, is truly remarkable, is that the jokes are still very funny after a hundred or a thousand times. Oh, yes, they just, there were no cucumbers, not even for ready money. So anyhow, the idea is that if you, if you say to somebody, well, you are partially or, or even very largely the author of your own downfall, you are being uh, unpleasant and censorious and uncaring. Whereas I would say to tell them a lie and say, there's nothing you can do about this. I will sort it all out for you when you know perfectly well that you can't sort it all out for them. Um, uh, that I would say is, is, is uh, more cruel uh, and um, unkind. Isn't it true that in the last number of years that this, the research that's been done on addiction has shown that addiction is, is rather stranger than we had ever thought it was? And people had known for years but had kind of ignored the fact, for example, that you had very large numbers of uh, soldiers, American soldiers in Vietnam, yes. who took heroin. Yes. And of them, 99%, we'll say, 
went back to the States and just and just stopped. Stopped. Yeah. That's yeah, that, that's true. They what they found was that in the end, the uh, their level of addiction was no higher than the recruits who ne- that of the recruits who never got to Vietnam, mm-hmm. and that was uh, that. Those reports were published in seventy three, seventy four, yeah. something like that. Uh, but the peculiar thing is that no one takes any ev- any notice of evidence like that. And <clears throat> I can give you another example in the prison in which I work. Um, it used to be the case. I don't know what the case is now. It's some years ago, of course. I've, I've been retired for 15 years, so things may have changed. But it was a legal obligation for the prison to have a doctor examine patient uh, prisoners within 24 hours of their arrival. And generally speaking, it was done immediately on their arrival, within a couple of hours. And what I observed was, of course, many of the prisoners were, at that stage, uh, drug addicts. I mean, they were heroin addicts. Mm-hmm. And what I would see is that um, they would be laughing, they would be in a waiting room laughing and joking amongst themselves. And then they would come into my room and they would suddenly be in the last stages of agony. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know whether I have this effect on people, perhaps I do. But uh, but anyway, they would uh, be terribly in terrible agony, and and it was perfectly obvious to me what they were hoping was that I was going to prescribe something for them. Now, this was a phenomenon that many of my colleagues had observed that they that the addicts spoke completely differently among themselves from how they spoke to someone like a doctor or maybe a nurse who was in a position to give them what they wanted. But nobody ever drew any conclusions from this fact. They recognized that it was a phenomenon, but but they didn't draw any conclusions from it. Wasn't this a widely recognized, as you say, phenomenon in in that I've I've heard doctors talk about the fact that you, you would find patients that would come back in to hospital on a regular basis for some kind of undiagnosed, indefinite chronic pain problem. And somebody would start to wonder, you know, are they just, are they, are they, is it because they're just trying to score some scripts? And what Mm. they would do is they would keep them under observation unbeknownst to the patient. And they would see that when the patient was by themselves, they would be just relaxed watching TV, doing something. But when they thought someone was coming, suddenly they would go into, they become rigid and their yes. face would contort because they were in pain. And they, yeah. only, they were only in pain when they were being observed. And this, and this was a, com- a commonplace in, in American hospitals. They knew that there were people who were doing this regularly. Yeah. Yes, but nobody draws any conclusion from it. That, that's the point. So if you look at the National Institute of Drug Addi- on Drug Addiction, uh, they won't draw any conclusion from it whatsoever, uh, and and then they and, and then of course they could defend themselves by saying, well, okay, that might be true, but nevertheless, these people are in desperate need of their of their drugs overall in their lives. So and also, it's really the fault of uh, doctors who won't prescribe liberally enough, uh, so that they are forced, if you like, forced to. Um, uh, to act in this way. Another, um, another 
connection, drawing these two things together, crime and addiction, uh, someone like Polly Toynbee says that drug addicts are forced to be criminals in order to obtain, uh, obtain their drugs. That, and therefore, what we should be doing is giving them as many drugs as they like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a bit like saying uh, burglars being poor are forced to burgle. And that if only we would give them all that they wanted, then they wouldn't uh, uh, they wouldn't uh, burgle anymore. Anyway, uh, now the connection between drug addiction and crime is a lot more complex than this would suggest. So that, for example, in the prison in which I worked, I just I discovered something which other people have discovered before. I didn't discover it. I, I repeat it, was that um, actually most drug addicts who were who ended up in prison had long criminal records before they were ever drug addicts. Right. So it wasn't. So if there was a causative relationship, it was more that whatever made them criminals attracted them to drug addiction rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, at, 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 but that again doesn't mean to say that you have no sympathy or, or understanding of, if you like, their existential position, sure. which is which is genuinely often um, bad. But okay, I, 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 is this true? I, I I I read a paper which said that uh, we give heroin addicts methadone to get yeah. them off heroin. But methadone is actually a less stable and more dangerous drug, easier to overdose on, and that the that while that that heroin, the um, the what's the phrase when people come off a drug? The withdrawal. Withdrawal. The withdrawal symptoms. Symptoms from methadone are, are are much nastier than withdrawal from heroin. Yeah. Well, uh, the first thing to say is that withdrawal from opiate drugs is not re- nearly. Uh, as bad as most people think it there's been a this is my theory anyway um there's been a continuous and more or less continual uh overestimation of the horrors of withdrawal ever since de quincey uh, wrote and de quincey mm-hmm. was a very charming man and a very good writer but i'm afraid he wasn't entirely truthful but he's always been taken as uh, uh, as literally truthful as was as was Coleridge. anyway the point is that their withdrawal is not very serious certainly not serious by comparison with withdrawal from alcohol at least when someone is drinking very heavily so which is a much more serious medical condition so withdrawal from opiates is actually relatively trivial and um I remember someone, someone, a drug addict, saying to me, this is the evilest thing uh, that's ever happened to me, withdrawal. And I said, well, you've, uh, you've been very fortunate. You've led a very sheltered life. <laughs> and, uh, um, so, well, it, 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 yeah, sorry, go on. Let no, me, no, 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 I, I'm sorry, to, but, okay, I was, I, I was a child in the 1970s, so in, in rural Ireland, so my experience of heroin was watching uh, Starsky and Hutch or something, right? Yeah. And all I knew about heroin was, you took it once, you became a, a slavishly addicted, you could never get off it, and you would you would die within, you'd be dead within a year or so. That was what, a, a junkie. I mean, it was just this horrible thing. Now, I move on, and 30, 20 years, whatever, later. Uh, in Ireland, the heroin problem tended to be a problem of the inner city poor. 
Yeah. I was living in Milan, where it was a problem in the early 80s. It was a middle-class problem. Yeah. And I, my, my friends, were a little bit, most of the group I was friendly with, who were a little older than me, and all of them had been in school with people who had been heroin addicts or had taken heroin. Mm-hmm. But this was the thing that got me. There were still a couple of guys hanging around who were still on heroin. They came from wealthy families, and their families would had what they their their uh, modus vivendi was. They went to Switzerland and they got pharmaceutical heroin, and it was dosed. At least that was the story that we were being told. Is that possible? Yes. Yeah. I mean, in in the nineteen, it seemed to have reasonable lives. It didn't seem. Oh to... yes. Yeah. It's perfectly possible. Uh, there's nothing inherent. I mean, I, it's not something I would advise, or uh, but it is perfectly possible for people to have normal lives while being addicted to uh, morphine or heroin. And indeed, in the 1920s in the United States um, and 30s, it was mainly a middle class problem, and um, many intellectuals. There was a a, uh, a well known writer in Britain called. Um, uh, Anna Cavan, mm-hmm. who uh, was a heroin addict, took it for all during, I don't know, maybe 40 years, something like that, 30 to 40 years. Uh, she produced many books uh, and and she um, uh, she never overdosed. Um, okay, put it, put it this way. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, I wouldn't say it's a recommend, I don't recommend no, it as yes. a way of life, sure. but it is possible to live like that. I'll put it this way, it's, it's okay, it's, it's just, it is what the economists would call suboptimal. Yeah. But if you were to say a heroin addict who was getting his heroin from the chemist, yes. as opposed to an alcoholic, yes. that the alcoholic's life is, is going to be more damaging, more chaotic, more, problem, pro- more problematic. Well, intrinsically, it is more so because some uh, it is more um, uh, problematic because when a man is drunk, um, he can't actually uh, function in a normal way. But when someone, a heroin addict, has taken his heroin, he can function in a normal way. So in that sense, uh, that would be true. I hesitate to say all this in case anybody should take me to be saying, oh, it's all right, you can go off and be a, a heroin addict and lead a, an otherwise normal life. Okay. Uh, but- okay, rather than ask you the question, are you in favor of legalization? I'll put it this way. Do you think there, it, it was a mistake to criminalize? Because it's only in really the 20th century that most drugs have been criminalized. Was it a mistake, say, to criminalize this, the sale and, and the use of heroin? And heroin is, is a, it's a, it is actually, it's by, it's buyer, I think, is it? It's a pharmaceutical product. It, it was originally, yes. Originally. So was that an, an error to, 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 do, to, to criminalize it? Um, well, I suppose, suppose people were worried about the numbers of people who were becoming addicted so that doctors a very high percentage of doctors uh, became addicted and it did impact on their lives and their ability to function um, uh, in a way i think it's an irrelevant question because from mm-hmm. the question would be what do we do now what will we do with the situation now so what do uh, we do now do you think Ah, well, you see, I haven't really worked it out. <laughs> That's okay, too. 
right? It's okay too. Rather, much better say that than pretend, as I think many of our, uh, uh, shall we say, confreres in the world of opinion have all of the answers. Confidently, <laughs> confidently have all of the answers. Yes. I mean, again, legalization, uh, what, does, what does it actually mean? It covers more than one possibility. Um, I mean, uh, it could mean that you just go down and get your heroin like you go and get your chocolate or your um, Nescafe or something. Or it could mean, as it did in Britain, and as I remember, I mean, I, I remember the old system where uh, drug addicts would actually get their, uh, uh, their heroin on prescription mm. from a doctor. And that was called the British system. Yes. Uh, but, and in, in, in the late 1950s, or 57 or something like that, Lord Brain, who was a very famous neurologist, was asked to investigate all this. And he came to the conclusion that there was no need to do anything. The system was working well because in the whole of Britain, there were 60 heroin addicts. Okay. About. Right. Okay. Known. And probably there weren't very many more because, of course, if you could get your heroin free from your doctor, why would you go and get it? from somebody else so and I remember when I started in uh, in the prison one would have to register an addict um, once you knew that somebody was an addict you had to register it with the home office and so on but they very soon gave up that because there were too many and uh, 40 or less uh, yeah less yeah about 40 years after Lord Brain's um, report there were 150,000 injecting addicts in Britain. Okay. So obviously what's appropriate at the time of Lord Brain um, made his report would not be appropriate now that we have 150,000 or, or more people injecting and we have others who smoke it. Mm -hmm. Um in fact, I believe the, the problem is decreasing rather than increasing for reasons which are not immediately clear. But the number of new addicts, people who are taking it up, is going down rather than up. Mm -hmm. The United States, we hear a lot these days, yes. has a problem with opioids. Yes. Uh, particularly, it's associated with sort of uh, uh, poor white uh, communities in places like West Virginia, yeah. Tennessee, Appalachians. Some people think there, there, are, there is a voice, there are voices out there, that it's all wildly overstated, it's not really a problem. But has this been a problem in England? Is this an issue? Well, I think it's, uh, it's becoming an issue, but the, it's interesting to look at the, 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 how the problem started in the United States. Um, <clears throat> in 1980, there was a publication in, in the New England Journal of a letter by two people called Porter and Jig, who said that uh, fears of addicting people, uh, addicting patients to uh, op opiates and opioids uh, was exaggerated because when they looked at people who had been given them in hospital after a heart attack or, or, or during a heart attack or, or after an operation, uh, they never became addicted, to, virtually never became addicted to, to the drugs that they'd been given. And that was my experience in, in Britain. I saw hundreds or even thousands of addicts, but I never saw one who started off 
by having been given these drugs in hospital for a, a medical reason. Okay. And then uh, in the 90s, drugs, new synthetic opioids were, uh, it were uh, discovered or invented. Uh, and it was said that, there, that patients have been grossly undertreated for uh, pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was true that, for example, um, patients who were dying were sometimes denied drugs uh, to make them comfortable because the doctors were f- afraid uh, to make them addicted, even though they were only going to live three mm-hmm. or four weeks anyway, yeah. which was clearly ridiculous so, and, and actually cruel. But from Porter and Jick's paper, or it was actually only a letter, um, the drug companies encouraged doctors to conclude, but the doctors are still responsible for their own conclusions, of course, that chronic pain, you, there was no risk of addicting people with opioids if you gave it for chronic pain, uh, which was previously untreated or, or had not been uh, successfully treated. Now, it's a, it should have been perfectly obvious to doctors that there was a big difference between someone going into a hospital with a heart attack or having had an operation, that kind of pain, from the pain that someone, uh, dare I say it, with your physique, who's, yes. uh, <laughs> who's, un- <laughs> who's unemployed and has just lost his job yeah. and he's 50 and he's not going to get another job and um, he loses all sense of self-worth uh, uh, in some god-awful formerly uh, <laughs> industrial town in Ohio, yeah. there's a big difference between these two types of people, but instead of which they were amalgamated and, and the, the, uh, these very strong opioid drugs were given out more or less like sweets. And, and lo and behold, huge numbers of people became addicted. And now the... the the, and and there, incidentally, there were very corrupt doctors in America also who would sell prescriptions uh, for money. Um, so they were known as pill factories. Um, and so the, but now the problem, of course, has got completely out of hand. It, it, it's gone beyond that because uh, heroin, is, heroin or, or uh, even stronger drugs are easily imported. They're distributed uh, uh, with systems almost as sophisticated as those of Amazon. Yeah. And so it's, it's got completely out of control. So that actually, when you look at all the deaths from overdose in the United States, they are from about the year 2000 or even a bit before. And incidentally, I think I was one of the first to write about this. Um, uh, the, the total of them is greater than all the military losses of the United States after the Second World War. My so, uh, in, including the Vietnam, Vietnam War, the Korean War, and all the other little wars. Um, and in fact, much greater. The losses are much, much greater. And uh, to go back to the National Institute on Drug Addiction, it, it, it has congratulated itself on its enormous understanding, increasing understanding of the problem of addiction while all this was going on. 
<laughs> so they were patting themselves on the on the back while the country uh, had an, an unprecedentedly large amount of addiction. Um, so, uh, but what you now do about it, of course, is uh, especially in the United States where it's got out of hand, it is difficult to say. So it's, I wouldn't like if you said to me, "You are." You are the dictator of policy. Mm. It's up to you to decide what to do about it. Uh, I'm not sure what I would do about it. I mean, in the United States, of course, they're encouraging people to have the antidote and so on. Um, but I'm not sure I, I know what to do about it. And I'm think... not sure I would know about what to do about it in North Dublin either. Mm. I don't know whether it's declining in North Dublin. I don't know. I, I don't. I, I, it seems. I, I'm just wondering if if this is another example of the way um, events in the United States seem to have this cultural impact, social, cultural, medical, technological, on the rest of the English-speaking world, even if the context is completely different. That. When this started to become a big issue, and that's, it, it, it's what, maybe 15 years ago that people started, were already talking a lot about the problem with the opioids. Mm. Um, for example, it has become increasingly impossible. Well, you, you have to stand in a chemist for 15 minutes now in Ireland if you want to get, um, if, a script, if you want to get um, 12 tablets of yeah. paracetamol with, 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 uh, with a, little, a little codeine in them, if you were... Yes. One of those really bad mornings. Well, and maybe that's for, for the good. I don't know. But at the same time, uh, there were uh, there was a there was a a, a drug I think was, or was called distalgesics. They were they yes. were called, and they were used for the management of uh, I think moderate to, to to severe pain in long term. My mother had osteoporosis for thirty years. Hmm. She was eighty, and she found that this was. She was a good patient. I suspect she had pain all the time. But yes. she found that the dystalgesics did help. And then they were stopped because there was a concern that my 80-year-old mother, I think, was going to become addicted to the dystalgesics. Well, I don't know. I'm not her specifically, obviously. But yes. that, what my point well, was, it was uh, the, the problem with, uh, with <clears throat> uh, the reason she found it superior to other drugs mm. was not because of its superior uh, pain controlling aspect but it had a tranquilizing effect mm -hmm. and it was and it was particularly dangerous in overdose so they i mean there were i can't remember the figures but in overdose it was very dangerous now obviously your mother wasn't going to take an overdose and it's very and it was very hard on her uh, that it should be stopped uh, but the fact is that uh, there was no good reason for it having really been prescribed in the first place in any large quantities because it was shown that the the other ingredient of it was called dextropropoxyphene uh, was not superior to paracetamol alone as far as pain is concerned and people were taking it because it had this tranquilizing effect. Indeed, and that was principally what it worked for her, was that it meant she slept at night. Yeah. And then for the last yeah. three years of her life, she had very poor sleep. Yeah. And it seemed to me just, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's a small thing, that, I, that you could have left that up to the discretion of the prescribing doctor. Yes, yeah. 
Unfortunately, in the United States, the discretion <laughs> the doctors have not proved uh, very glorious as far as discretion no, is concerned. I, I understand that, but I would, I would, I would bizarrely actually. I think there's quite there are very high levels of trust in Ireland still for the GPs. doctors. Yeah, people, and, and I would say that that's a deserved trust. I think the the standard of of doctors in 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 Ireland, in Ireland and I suspect in in, in the UK. And that I wouldn't. I think Harold Shipman is an outlier, but <laughs> well, one hopes so. <laughs> but okay, I want to go back. Yeah, to so that. no, I, I I agree, and therefore, uh, you see, I'm uh, very much. I think it's very important to look at individual countries and not just take other in complex social situations and this is a complex social situation. You can't just apply the experience of one country to another country. So I wouldn't even apply, the, uh, despite the similarity of Ireland and England, I wouldn't just um, apply the Irish experience to the English or the other way around. You, you can't make that assumption. You can't make that. I mean, to give you an example of the kind of problem that you get if you do do that kind of thing, Mr. Blair, the sainted Mr. Blair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He thought that we should extend our licensing laws so that we became more like the Southern Europeans, who, of course, are. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, we're all going to drink in cafes like we were in. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. In our wonderful, in our wonderful English and Irish weather. Exactly. I'm, I'm all for the cafes in Avignon and in and in and in Firenze or Napoli, but we're not here. Yeah, well, I mean, even if we had the same weather, we don't have the same people. No. <laughs> so, so this, I, you see, this is this is the very crude and mechanical way of looking at uh, social problems. So, say, if it's all right in in some Greek island, it's okay. It's okay in uh, Lambeth. And I mean, also, parenthetically, by the way. Go to Veneto and look at the levels of cirrhosis. Yes. You know, yes. It's th this notion that all these people are just sipping away on, 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 on glasses of Prosecco and have two in a night, it's not. Now, that may be, gen the further south you go, the hotter it gets, the less they drink. Yes. But, but also, of course, uh, I mean, the, the fact is that um, uh, sipping, con I mean, there there used to be types of alcoholic, and the one was the inability to abstain, and the other was the inability to control. Yes. So the inability to control type just uh, didn't drink and then started drinking and couldn't or wouldn't stop. I won't use the word couldn't, but wouldn't stop until he was uh, under the table. Whereas the inability to abstain person drinks a little all the time. And from the point of view of cirrhosis, that is worse. Uh, but from the point of view of social problems, apart from mm -hmm. driving, of course, um, uh, it's, it, it's better because they never get drunk. I mean, mm -hmm. they might never be fully sober but they're never they're never um, fighting they're, drunk they're they're, so, they're, ne they're never um, much more than what we would say merry they're just merry they're merry they're merry they're never quite yeah they've got the happy buzz that happy yes it's funny the, where yeah. the, the little village i used to go to for my holidays in the north of italy it was the taxi driver was like that 
which was, I always felt a bit of a worry. <laughs> yes. Well, the accident rate was very, very high. I mean, and still in France, yeah, the deaths from driving are, um, are twice as high as Britain, despite the roads being much less crowded. It was um, standard. And probably a lot of that is because people do drink at lunchtime. They even drink at breakfast, you know, so... Um, and then Saturday night was the big, in Italy, around the north of Italy, it was a commonplace, it was a headline, which was what they called the Strage di Sabato Sera, the, the, the bloodbath of Saturday night. They tended to be yeah. young people, young men, or young, cars yeah. of young men. And every night, and it was a mixture, I, it was alcohol and cocaine probably, and, and or whatever. Was that a recent phenomenon? Or that was the uh, 90s. I would say the, the yeah. late 80s, the 90s. It was an economic... I, I doubt that you would have seen it in the 60s or no, the 70s. no, no. Because it was a different, the socialization was different. People would have socialized in the cities. But yeah. in the 80s and the 90s, there was this thing people would go outside the city to these places on the edge, these massive, uh, these massive clubs with hotels beside them because, of course, they were living at home. So moments of intimacy had to be grasped somewhere. Now, I just wanted to go back. I, I, I adverted to an article you wrote, uh, which I read called The Knife Went In, which is this, 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 uh, this way that the language that criminals use, that somebody doesn't say, I stabbed, and that's when I stabbed him. They say, that's when the knife went in, as if it under <laughs> other agency. And just in connection, I, I, I remember reading, uh, I think it was probably in the City Journal as well, you're talking about the practice of psychiatry, and that m most psychiatry tends to be on some level, uh, like a form of non-directive counselling. Mm. So how do you feel? Uh, well, I'm feeling tired. So how do you feel about being, feeling tired? It was, the, the, it was never the role of the therapist to take a moral position. Yeah. But you said, when you have people coming to you and they're continually making decisions which you know are going to be bad for their life, there is something both, I think, I don't know if you said cowardly or immoral in not saying to them, if you keep doing this thing, bad things will keep happening to you. Yes. And how do you feel just generally about the, 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 the profession today? I mean, have you ever watched, okay, I'll, I'll frame this, it'll take one minute. Have you ever seen The Sopranos? No. I, I, I should say that I'm uh, about television. I'm completely ignorant because I haven't had one for 50 years. Uh. Oh, right. Well, it's a wonderful piece of drama. And in it, the, the much compromised wife of the boss goes to see a psychiatrist, referred to see a psychiatrist because she's feeling conflicted and depressed about this relationship he has with this, her mafia boss husband. She's referred to something of a cliche. He's this elderly Jewish psychoanalyst, meet an accent, I think, also, you know. And instead of just giving her pablums, he says, no, you must leave him, take the children, and this clothes you have on, you must take none of his money, nothing. She said, why are you saying this? This is not what he And he said, maybe for most people, psychiatry has just become this uh, echo chamber where you just tell people back what they feel. But, and, and, but there's a wonderful telling line, it's almost Greek, where she's terribly upset by this. She, his money is blood money, you can't take his money, you can't take the property, you can't profit from this relationship, or you will never have any kind of self-respect. And she yes. says, why are you saying this? It's like the last line of, of Sophocles. Why are you telling me this? And he looks and says, 
because you will never be able to say, nobody told me. Yes. It's like a line of condemnation. It's yes. A, like a curse. Um, how did you feel, how did you feel practicing as a psychiatrist? What your role was as a psychiatrist? And the profession well, generally. Well, it varied, of course. It varied very much because I was working in a general hospital, and so sometimes people, um, their conditions were organic. They were, they were just, uh, they behaved in a very strange way uh, um, because they had an organic condition, which it was the doctor's duty to diagnose and, and, and treat if he could. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the vast majority of people were having difficulties with living. And in a sense, I was trying to demedicalize it. Because once you say, well, here, take these pills, mm. w- what you are saying is you have a medical condition and it's up to me to, to sort it out. And of course, you knew perfectly well that it wasn't going to be sorted out because it wasn't the kind of thing that taking tablets, I mean, short of a general anesthetic, <laughs> could... Uh, could could actually solve. So it was deceptive in a way. And um, uh, and I was particularly exercised. I worked in a ward in which we had about a thousand suicide attempts a year. So I saw thousands and thousands of suicide attempts. Sometimes people. What? A thousand. A thousand, yeah. wow. A thousand, yes. Um, or more, actually. And many of them were of uh, women who were very badly abused by men. Uh, of course, lots of women abuse men terribly as well. Uh, but the, these women would have, serially speaking, uh, terrible uh, boyfriends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and their lives were made miserable by them. Um, and it seemed to me that uh, sometimes I would say to them, well, how long would it have taken me to discover that this man is no good? And uh, they said, well, you would have known immediately. Uh, so I would say, well, if, if you know, I would know immediately. You know what it is that I would know. And therefore, you have been complicit in your own situation. You have... Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me necessary to say that because otherwise the people would just think of themselves as victims and nothing but victims. Of course, they were victims. They were victims of terrible, uh, terrible behaviour. There's no doubt about that. And I had no sympathy for the victimizer. But it was important that the person, I thought anyway, understood, in this case, her own... Uh, part in the creation of the situation so that for example I would say well how did you meet him and he you know she met him in a pub and half an hour later she decided to live together with him and and I said well if that you know I made the obvious point is if that is how you decide whether or not you live with someone you know after half an hour acquaintance in the pub it's not really surprising that um, you don't necessarily live happily ever after, mm. and uh, and actually, uh, almost all of them accepted this kind of conversation. 
some of them even started laughing because it was so absurd. What, what mm -hmm. their behaviour was so absurd. And now I'm not claiming that they went and did. They all went and did otherwise, and then they did live happily ever after. I'm not claiming that, but it seemed to me to to refrain from saying these very obvious things um, was not uh, was not serviceable to them and and actually you were one was if one avoided doing it it was more from cowardice from from the fact that it's a difficult thing to say to somebody mm -hmm. who's just had her jaw broken by some monstrous man um, that actually she was partly uh, responsible and that she can go on if she wanted she could go on uh, like that uh, but if she wanted to change her life it was largely up to her and she and I used to say to them and I say well if you get rid of this terrible monster um, the next time you find someone bring him to me and I'll tell you whether you can whether you can have a relationship with them. And they, they, would, and they would start laughing because they knew it was true. And, uh, and I, as I said, I can't, I can't give you any scientific evidence that it did any good. And, but even if it did good just to a few, it was worth doing. I mean, you're, you're practicing in a pretty tough kind of a context yes. where you were. Was it hard to keep positive about the work? Uh, yes, because I found it uh, very interesting. It was always very interesting. And I mean, this is a, perhaps a bad thing, but the fact that I knew that I was going to write about it helped me also. Mm. Because I felt that I, I felt it necessary to communicate, I mean, partly for my own benefit of course but I also felt it necessary to communicate it to other people who would not otherwise have any knowledge of this world at all even though it was a very extensive world so um, and uh, you could uh, deny you could find different explanations of of what I was seeing but you couldn't really deny the phenomena themselves and um, so that's why, really, I, I don't think I've ever been uh, very seriously or nastily attacked uh, because uh, they couldn't say, well, he, he's, he never saw what he's describing. He's just making it up because mm. I obviously wasn't. Yeah, sure. um, now you could disagree. You could say, oh, well, it's because of capitalist society that people are like this or whatever explanation. But you couldn't deny that this was actually happening. It's become a bit of a thing, or it, it became a bit of a thing over here a few years ago, which was, uh, with a number of psychiatrists are getting worried about what they call the politicization of the, uh, of the profession, or rather that the profession in a sense were being used as useful idiots by people with a... And there were the two things that constantly came up. The first was there was a bill going through the doll here, and I, without touching on, shall we say, the rightness or the wrongness of the substantive issue, it was going to introduce abortion uh, in response to suicidal ideation in women. Yeah. And a lot of psychiatrists were saying, well, abortion isn't a treatment for suicidal ideation. 
Mm. So what's the? There isn't a connection. You you could say, well, I'm suicidal. Well, then you treat you treat you tr- you treat that. You don't. It's but it was brought through, shall we say, under under a psychiatric guise, and so the the the, the professional uh, body signed up to it. Whatever, even though a lot of psychiatrists privately said they were they they didn't like this connection. Recently, the uh, APA in the United States has got waded in pretty deep into the whole issue of, of transgender, the transgender mm. issue. And, mm. and it is now the, the stated policy of the APA is that uh, if, a, if, if a therapist cannot affirm, uh, if, say, it's a child, if the, uh, who has a, a decided that they, uh, they have the wrong gender, Whatever that means, that, that if this, if the therapist cannot affirm them in that, then they should resign as their therapist. Mm. What do you think about the ethics of that? Are as, as a therapist, does that worry you? Um, well, particularly in that case, it would because uh, um, uh, obviously a child. Uh, is in my view not in a position to make that kind of decision that will affect him or her for the rest of his or her life. Um, if you talk about someone, I mean, I, I'm my difficulty with uh, transsexualism, as we used to call it. Yes, is uh, <laughs> and there's a, and there's a big difference in the uh, in the connotations yeah is that i can't see it as anything other i mean i'm afraid i have to be honest i can't see it as anything other than bizarre which is not the same as saying if i meet someone who is transsexual i will be impolite to him or her or um or in fact discriminate against that person on those grounds. I wouldn't. But that's not the same as saying I'm all for it. And, uh, and I, I think it's a glorious achievement of our society that some enormous percentage of, some much larger percentage of children are, um, uh, are claim now to have uh, dysphoria as to their sex. Let me tell you something about uh, the Irish state television contacted me once about this question. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a specialist in it, and actually I'm not even particularly interested in it. Um, but they said, would you speak, would you be prepared to say on television, RT, mm. um, uh, that you think that, the, the, uh, that this question... Uh, is being discussed in a wrong way and that you don't see it as a great liberation for humanity. And at first I was very reluctant because it's not a subject on which I know a great deal, of which I know a great deal, and also I didn't really want to be the victim of any particular outcry. I mean, you might say that's very cowardly, and I, sh- I should. No, uh, I think it, these days it's increasingly a, a, a sensible and pragmatic thing. You look, J.K. Rowling yes. has, a, has a billion quid in the in the, and she yes. still gets it. Yes, 
Yes. Well, of course, I mean, it's easier to sustain if you've got a billion quid. I mean, it doesn't. <laughs> but anyhow, I mean, not that I'm... No, I understand. Yes. Anyway, I just, don't, I just don't really want to be the object of hatred. Yes. Um, uh, so, uh, anyway, I let them persuade me to go on. And I said, okay. And they came over here and they interviewed me and I was fairly circumspect but what they told me was that there were many people to whom they had spoken who were extremely um, who were worried about it who didn't go along with the official line about it and so on but they couldn't get anyone to speak up about it mm. no one would speak up including professors in Ireland but they wouldn't say anything uh, because they were well, they were afraid in the way that I was afraid, and in the end I did go on it. I don't I don't even know whether they I don't know whether they use what I said, but I but amongst other things I was a reason for me I was reasonably circumspect, and uh, I said um, you know if you want to study why the numbers are increasing, I think you are probably better off studying fashion than anything else. Mm -hmm. you know, so the, the Balenciaga or so on would be uh, uh, you know, the history of Balenciaga or Chanel would probably be uh, the best way of looking at it I don't know whether they I don't know whether they Eight, eight or nine years ago I had a conversation with a professor uh, of psychiatry uh, here who was involved in I don't know anymore there was a panel I think of people that would approve or if you were going to medically, yeah. surgically transition. And I was talking, we were having a private conversation. And I don't, not that I'd think that if it was, had been in public, you would have said anything different. But he said, you know, the, I said, well, what do you think is going on? Is it, and he said, no, it's a dysphoria. Whatever. I, I asked him, do you think that there isn't, that, that these, say, a, this person is actually, in any sort of deep, profound sense, a woman? And he said, no. No, that's so I said, Well, how do you ethically square that with the saying yes, okay, go ahead? They said, Well, the fact is, we're presented by people who are very often in very, very deep pain. And we have nothing to offer them as a mm. professional. As a psychiatrist, I have nothing to offer that person. I don't, there's no I can't offer them a drug. There is no there, I can't there's no talk therapy that seems to be effective. And that for some people this does make them happy. That the that it, it can work for some people. And since we have nothing else to offer them, I don't feel like it. And I thought that was a reasonable position. I thought, you know, yeah. the problem is perhaps more when we, we're, okay, you're talking about young people. We've seen this sudden explosion. And since that conversation, this has happened of what now is being called sudden onset, sudden onset gender dysphoria, uh, particularly with young girls. And what once psychiatrist here has observed who might have fitted into the pattern if it had been 15 years or 20 years ago of the kind of girls who would have either self-harmed or have been anorexic. Mm. And you get the same kinds of online support groups because there were these secret groups online which support anorexics would, would support each other. But also the fact, he said, you're looking at, at, the, at the, it's understudied, vastly understudied, but he said, there are studies which suggest 40, 50%, maybe more of these young girls are also autistic, that they, they have, that they have, 
they're suffering from depression or anxiety disorders, personality disorders. And that's just not being considered at all as in their total uh, psychiatric assessment. In, in the, and it seems Douglas Murray believes that what's going to stop this is ultimately our court cases. Yes. Yeah. Though there, there will, there, there, I mean, I've always thought that the end result of this is going to be huge negligence uh, claims. So, and there will be enormous. And um, uh, if I'm a 13 year old girl and I come to you as a psychiatrist, and you can see that I have an anxiety disorder, that I'm self harming, and I'm autistic, and you don't take anything, any, and then I come back when I'm 21 and I ha I'm in the process of detransitioning, shall we say. Yeah. I think I'm going to come looking for you and say, I think you, I think you were negative. You didn't do a very good job. You know, I have, expect, I have, I have expectations of you. Listen, I, I, I want to leave that because there's one thing I want to go on to. Yeah. Because I'm aware of this. I take, which is architecture. Yes. Is a, a bit of a jump, but there you go. <laughs> the, uh, one of the most prominent voices in Ireland on the issue of housing and homelessness um, a, a, a man of the left recently was talking, made a statement about a building in Dublin. That building, you, you, I'm sure you'll have never heard of, is called the Kulak Shopping Centre. Uh, it is hideous. Mm. And he, and I'm quoting, he said, it is one of the last few remaining examples of brutalism in mm. Dublin, and it should be celebrated. Celebrated? Celebrated. But, so, he admits it's, but he admits it's hideous, or... No, no, he didn't say that. He said it was, it was one of the last remaining examples... That of, was all, yeah. ...of brutalism. Yes. Of, of, of that style, of the, of the brutalist style in Dublin, and should be celebrated. Because quite a lot of people are saying, pull the damn thing down. Damn, yeah. Because it's brutalist. Um, I think that one of the areas that people on, on the right, and not just, uh, have left alone or not sufficiently kicked them over... It has been architecture because in a, arch, the the, the post-war experience of architecture it has in a sense no not as it has been literally the concrete expression of a totalitarian ideology oh yeah i don't think there's any question of that and actually if you look at the history of the modernists and particularly le corbusier le corbusier was actually a, a fascist in the most literal sense i mean he he, he i'm not using the word metaphorically i mean right. he he associated with fascists and so on and and uh, of course he wouldn't he was really pro totalitarian and he was mm. a totalitarian himself i mean he wanted the architecture of the entire world uh, to follow his kind of plans uh, which is an idea that is so peculiar that you would have thought that it would disqualify him from ever being allowed to build anything. And in, indeed, in the, uh, his uh, plan voisin, his idea that uh, about half of Paris should be destroyed and turned into concrete towers. Uh, Paris. Half of well, Paris. Paris. Half of Paris. Now, anybody who, you would have thought that anybody who suggested such a thing uh, had lost his entitlement to being listened to with any seriousness. But not led away, led away gently <laughs> by the hand and said, now it's time to take a little nap. Yeah. Well, I, in, in a psychiatric hospital, I would say. <laughs> but but uh, we're getting take, in white coats. Take care coaches. of you now. <laughs> yeah. 
but far from that, criticism, in, for example, in uh, French architectural schools of Le Corbusier, uh, means that you destroy your own career. He's still regarded as the great genius, but it's quite clear that his aesthetic and that of Gropius and, and, and Mies van der Rohe and the Mies, others yeah, yeah. Yeah, has ruined immense numbers of towns and cities. And it actually it takes only one of those buildings to destroy an entire town if when it's a small town. When did you go to Birmingham? When did you first go to Birmingham? I went uh, a long time ago, 1968, I think. Or... Uh, but by 68, they'd already done it to Birmingham, hadn't they? No, uh, they were in the process of doing it. So that, for example, the, the library, uh, I've just actually written a small article for a, a magazine called The Jackdaw, which is about art and architecture from a, a different point of view, which is well worth people looking at. Um, about the library. They had a magnificent Victorian library, really beautiful. They pulled it down and bought, built a modernist concrete ziggurat. I think it was from, um, I think it was 1974. Mm -hmm. Although unbelievably, unbelievably hideous. And finally, of course, they said, yes, you know, 40 years later or nearly, they said, yes, this is unbelievably hideous. We'll build another one. But as you would expect, the new one on which they've spent uh, 192 million pounds is, astonishingly enough, even more hideous. Oy. And um, I, I mean, it is, of a, it is of a hideousness which I can't describe. Well, I could describe it, it would take too long. Anyway, inside this building, there is a um, there's a single room that was preserved from the old library, and you see the craftsmanship and the love with which it was done, and then you understand or you imagine the love or the joy there mm. was in destroying it, because people destruction uh, is a very joyful activity for some kinds of people. Who, who find uh, beautiful things a challenge to themselves. There's a temptation which I think we should generally refuse, which is to psychologize those who disagree with us. Yes. I mean, back in the, I, I, I think, I'm sure plenty of people have said something like it, but I think, I, I remember reading Rousseau, and he said that for a civil, in a civil society for civil discourse, we must always... We must, ne we must choose not to believe that our enemies are mad, bad, or wicked. Yes. But simply disagree. Yes. Well, in this case, I don't understand it in the sense that I would say, just throwing it out, Art Deco mm. is the last humane moment that there have been sort of returns since then. You have, you've got, I suppose, what, Beaux-Arts, Art Nouveau, and then Art Deco. And then something, I suppose, beginning with Bauhaus, maybe, and then going on afterwards with the Brutalists. It's a rejection of beauty. It's an explicit, it's heavy, it's imposing. But also, is it, to, is it fanciful to believe that forcing people to live in ugliness affects people? That it's bad for human beings. 
uh, well, of course, people would, if I said yes, people would say, well, what's your evidence? Tell, show us that people who live in terrible, ugly places. Um, but they're also shoddy as well. They're shoddy, but they're ugly in a peculiar way because, of course, lots of, if you take uh, working class accommodation in Britain during the Victorian times or much later than the Victorian times, it wasn't exactly beautiful. Um, but there was something human about it. Yes. I mean, the the people for, yeah, I mean knew their neighbours and they looked out for each other and so on and so forth, and it was possible to do so. What happened, of course, was that they were put in kind of battery farms uh, on the grounds that the, in the battery farms they would have uh, more cubic metres of space and uh, certain amenities would be given them like uh, concrete shelters, which were known as uh, community centres where drug dealers could safely exchange their drugs. <laughs> Um, and, you know, and, and urinate. <laughs> and, yes. So, so the uh, the new architecture was actually a kind of bureaucrat's dream to control populations um, and to divide everyone and to make them dependent. Actually, uh, in the old architecture, which, as I said, could. You know, I, I knew people uh, who grew up in places where there was no indoor lavatory, no. for example. And uh, you must, there must have been like that in Dublin as well. Yes. Uh, My street, in 1963, there were houses. I live in the end of a terrace of yeah. workers' cottages. And in, as late as 1963, there were people whose outdoor toilets were what they called dry pit, dry toilets. They were lined. Yes. weren't even yes. thumbed out, sir. That's a, that's within six years of my of, of my being born. Yes, I would say that actually, once you if you take away the poverty of the people as they stopped being poor, and you plumbed them, and you and they were well maintained, they were actually very attractive little houses. Yes, yes, but but that wasn't in, uh, the the architects were not satisfied with that. They wanted. I mean, if you read Le Corbusier, and I've had the unfortunate experience of reading it because I was writing about him, mm -hmm. you will see that actually he's a social reformer more than he's an architect, or at least as much as you know, and a social reformer of a peculiarly nasty kind who wants everyone to be herded into to very similar places and. Um, he wants complete, and he hated the street. He hated all forms of spontaneity. So, um, yeah, spontaneity does uh, disappear in modernist uh, type housing estates. There can't be there can't be any communal life because it's impossible in that architecture to have communal life. People, in so far as people make a life for themselves, it's despite the architecture. Um, so he wanted to separate people and make them live in cells and he wanted those cells to be separate so workers would be in one place and uh, shop workers would be in another and diplomats would be in another and an artist in another and so on and so on. And that wouldn't be spontaneous, that would be planned. Of course, people do tend to live amongst types, people of their own type uh, anyway, but, that, but that's spontaneous. But he didn't want any of that spontaneity, he wanted it planned. So that's, to me, that sounds pathological. I mean, that sounds... I, 
It's like some you, if you if you're a, a if you're an, a, an adult or a person and you gave them a box of coloured bricks and the first thing they did were to separate all of them into the same colour and the same shape and they yeah. would get very upset. You know those people get upset if their peas touch their potatoes and their potatoes touch their meat. Yeah. That's bizarre. Also, well, it's, it's, a, a, it's a bit says, autistic actually. It's well, a yes, bit autistic. It is. I didn't like yeah, but it. I think he probably was autistic, actually. The other thing is he, he had uh, very poor vision. So uh, so he couldn't actually see what he was... Um, he had artistic talent, uh, but he was a very nasty piece of work. And they all were, uh, all these people. And they didn't... But, I, uh, but the question is, why, do these, why did these people achieve such influence? Yes. How does it happen that for 10,000 years, as a species, we are primarily, more than anything else, we are a visual animal. Our, more than our sight or our hearing, we are, we, are, we are deeply visual. And for 10,000 years, we've liked, we've valued beauty. Beauty was something that was... The only people today, it seems, I don't want to exaggerate, but the only people it seems to be today who actually care about something being beautiful are people who make cars, expensive cars. They say, they will ask the question, is it beautiful? Yes, my Aston Martin is beautiful, and I would love to have fun, because they are beautiful. But how did it happen? And it's not a question simply of size, is it, actually? No, because you can go, I've never been, but we'll say, you go to New York or Chicago, I imagine, and you have these high-rises, these massive buildings, but built in, the, in Beaux Arts styles, Art Deco, uh, buildings yeah. like the Chrysler Building, like the Flatiron Building, like the, new, the, 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 uh, the Empire State Building, and they're not ugly, they're not hideous. Mm. But most importantly, and that, I think this is the, has anybody ever expressed affection for a brutalist building? I think that you ask most New Yorkers, they would have great affection for these these. The Empire State Building or the Flatiron Building or whatever it is. Yeah. Whereas, well, it's certainly true that uh, uh, I can't think of anything that has been built that will not only that is charming, but that will ever have charm. I mean, you can't really imagine uh, charm. It's antithetical, absolutely, surely. Yeah. Um, and it, it and uh, these buildings they don't age; they just deteriorate and have to be. Uh, so, uh, so I go back to your question. How did they get this influence? How was this? Well, I think uh, I, I've thought about this, and I, of course, as usual, I don't have a definitive answer, and I couldn't prove most of my assertions. But I think the First World War had an enormous part to play in this. Uh -huh. I think if it hadn't been for the First World War, these people probably would have been regarded as cranks, and. Um, and they might have built one or two things, but they wouldn't have been influential. But after the First World War, people must have thought, well, there's something very wrong with our civilization. Mm. And I, I can understand why they thought that, because yeah. of the cataclysm that there had been. And if there, had, if there was something very wrong with the civilization, of course, building uh, architecture is one part of civilization, and everything had to change because our civilization was so so bad. So I think the, it gave these people their chance. I don't think anybody would have listened 
otherwise. And also, they were very, they were very clever in a way. Uh, they were clever not as architects. They were abominable architects, and they were grossly incompetent as architects. Actually, the flat roof and everything was, yeah. which in a rainy environment is about as stupid an idea as you can uh, you can have. But anyway. Um, they were very good at propaganda and so on, and they managed to insinuate into people's minds that if you didn't um, didn't approve of what they were doing, it was because your understanding was deficient. So it wasn't enough for you to come along and say, "Well, look, that looks pretty hideous to me." It looks hideous to you, and they managed to insinuate because you don't really understand. But we. We have special understanding. We, uh, what uh, Le Corbusier actually says mm. is, those who have eyes to see, in other words, if you don't see it, mm. you don't have eyes. And they managed to persuade people to, um, to accept this. That's really interesting because do you, I, I, are you aware of the, 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 the I know you're, you're a, Frank, a Francophile or a Francophone, or both. Uh, the debate between Foucault and Derrida. Uh, I don't know that specific debate. Well, well Foucault, I think, I think it's his, Foucault says to Derrida, it's, when Derrida's, to be fair to Foucault, I mean, he's all sorts of bad things, but he's, there's a clarity to his writing. Yeah. You, can, you can read him. Derrida, no. no. And, and it, I think he says to Derrida, one says, vous êtes terroriste. Yeah. He says, because, Everything, every your response to everything is always the same. You always say, "Vous m'avez mal compris. Vous êtes idiot." Yes. You have misunderstood me. You are an idiot. And yes. that's very interesting. If that is that maybe this is part of this tradition, this pretense that you make things arcane and difficult and strange, and people don't want to look stupid, so they pretend. Yeah, and well, the, more, it's the, the more important and powerful you are, the, the more important it is that you don't look stupid. Yeah, but you've managed to work yourself into that situation of importance. But I mean, it's a, if you like, it's a, the understanding of the modern world boils down to uh, Hans Christian Andersen's uh, story. You know, yes. the emperor no clothes, and um, uh, and George Orwell, after after all, said well, uh, that uh, one of the first duties of the intellectual is to see the obvious. Do you know, have you noticed that every time somebody comes out, say like Prince Charles, God bless him, comes out and tries to critique modernist architecture, and I wouldn't want to include everybody's modern yes. architecture in this. Yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright has did, did a nice house on the water, and I'm sure it's done other things. But everything that he's done, like when he does that house, he does this, this I think it's down in Devon or Cornwall, he, this, and it's in, in sort of a Georgian style or whatever. It's called pastiche. Oh, yes. God, no. Oh, it's how awful. It's pastiche. But isn't it the case that since the Greeks and then everything, every architectural style has been, in a sense, a reference pastiche. As a pastiche. The Roman temple is a pastiche of the Greek temple, and the Romanesque church is a pastiche of the, of the Roman temple. The Gothic does something new, but then it develops in its own way, and then we go backwards, and Renaissance goes back to the, the classical Classic. style, and mm. Baroque and Rococo, and then yes. Neo-Gothic is a pastiche of Gothic, and 
and it was okay, but now it's not well, okay. Uh, well, you see, the, 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 uh, in the modern world anyway, there's a cult of originality, and originality is a virtue in itself, irrespective of what, is, what it actually produces, as is trans- the word transgressive is a, a, term, a term of praise now, mm. irrespective of what, whatever is actually being transgressed. So, um, um, but anyway, the idea that there, I mean, there are many virtues which are not virtues in themselves unless they're allied to something else. So that, for example, bravery in a very bad cause is not a good thing. We, we praise it, it, Yeah, absolutely. When the, the, the words du jour is passionate. Everybody yes. is passionate. I, I, yeah, this is not a joke. This is true. Yesterday, uh, I was in the motors and I saw uh, he's selling rapeseed oil yeah. from farmers in Wicklow. And in the back it said, for two generations, passionate about making the finest rapeseed oil. <laughs> I know these guys, at Tony. I can tell you, they are not passionate about making rapeseed oil. They're, they're passionate, passionate about making money. <laughs> they're passionate about, that's possibly the only thing they might be passionate about. But the idea that they're there, like some kind of you know, Pouliez's peasant, smelling the first draws of the oil off the of the, the olives no no it's, but being passionate in a bad cause is an absolutely de- i mean this surely this is the first thing that occurs to you as a 13 year old when it, you when it hits you the first time that the nazis were absolutely sincere yes they were well, sincere. sincerity is not sincere i mean insincerity is maybe not a hundred percent a vice but it's usually a vice, shall we say. But that doesn't make sincerity virtue in itself. And they were um, acting out of conviction, and they were passionate. They're absolutely yes. passionate about yes. it. Yes. So, uh, yes, I mean, it seemed to you and me, it seems uh, obvious, as is the fact that something being original is not in itself praise of it. I mean... It, nothing is easier, actually, than originality in the sense that you can always find something to do which has never been done before. But there's often a reason why it hasn't been done before. Mm. <laughs> Namely, it's no good. And, uh, you know, you could, I suppose, make a skyscraper scra- out, of, out of refrigerated chocolate. But there would be, <laughs> yeah. know, and it would be very original. But nevertheless original is used as a term of praise in itself as is transgressive and anything which is said therefore the opposite which old or old-fashioned or yes modernity is i suppose the whole thing just before you go i just you 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 spend quite a bit of time in france i understand yes yes and i think that a lot of people you know france is a bit of a mystery I, i i remember an uncle of mine who had lived in uh, Fontainebleau with the R- he was in the RAF? God, years De Gaulle was still yeah. on the go, saying that he France was one of the great mysteries. Everything seemed to be wrong with it, but it seemed to work really well at the same time. In the midst of all of this brouhaha in the the English speaking world about Black Lives Matter and all that the stuff yes. that's going on and the, the, the statues were coming down. Macron comes on, and Macron seems to be, to, in every, seems to be in, every, in every other way, an absolute, a, like a, a stamp of, of a certain kind of contemporary modern politician. But he says, no, 
we will not alter history. There will be no statues coming down. The history of France is the history of France. Uh, what is it that the French have that other English-speaking countries seem to be, have lost or are losing? Well, I don't want to exaggerate the differences because actually uh, I would say in many respects they're just 20 or 30 years behind us in degeneration. That's a cheerful thought, okay. uh, uh, And for example, Black Lives Matter does find its um, echo in France. There's a case going on of a man called Traoré who died in police custody. He was a long-term criminal. Uh, There's no suggestion that he was a very good man. I don't, nobody quite knows uh, how he died in police custody. Um, And his sister, who is one of 17 children by a man who has had, uh, who, de facto breaks uh, breaks the uh, the law against um, against polygamy in France. Uh, she's making a big fuss, and she'll probably um, uh, she'll find a huge echo. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's very similar to what's going on in America. And everyone, uh, you know, most people are irritated by this. But nevertheless, she'll continue, and um, there will be more and more of her kind of agitation. Mm. And it kind of comes largely from America. So the difference is not uh, uh, um, enormous. I mean, the French are, of course, protected in a, to an extent by the fact that they speak a different language, of which they're very proud, which was once the, uh, the language of the whole of Europe. Um, and that uh, protects them to an extent. But um, uh, the statue of Voltaire, for example, in Paris, uh, was defaced. Okay. Uh, uh, I mean, they haven't pulled it down, and it's protected. Um, but I wouldn't like to say that it, it couldn't happen in France. No, but but the, uh, the difference is not so much that somebody mightn't deface it or try to pull it down. But if you look in Britain, you look certainly in Ireland, certainly in the States, there's been this really pusillanimous reaction of official oh, yeah. To, yeah. to this. Whereas Macron et al. have said, no, no, no. We're, we, we, we'll get, we, the gendarme will be out. We, we, there hasn't been this passive, oh, well, we understand your pain. Yes. That, that, this notion of la France seems to still... Well, it's still, it is is stronger, but I mean, I talk to quite a lot of people who are just as despairing about France as people are in Britain or about Britain or Americans now are. For the first time, I mean, I I think Americans really are despairing about the situation in America. Um, Now, they despair in in France for... for, um, for slightly different reasons, but you know, I talked to uh, uh, people, relatives of mine, uh, or relatives of my wife, and they say, "Well, France is finished." And uh, okay, Macron can say all these things, but de facto, um, I mean, nobody learns uh, French literature in schools anymore, and so on. Or very, very little by comparison. So you're not doing Racine and Cournoy or no, no, and and um, 
I mean, another sign of this is the fact that orthography, spelling in France, has declined uh, just as it has in uh, Britain, or probably, I don't know whether it has in Ireland. Oh, but the, the thing is, that, of course, the French used to just really care about that. There were these competitions, and it was a big... Yeah, well, no, no, that's, that's all gone. I mean, and I've, I've seen it, I, I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not bilingual, but even I can see the mistakes that, for example... Uh, uh, a relative of mine um, see, um, shows me uh, from correspondence, uh, email correspondence mm. that she has of people who've been uh, brought up in France and who are supposedly uh, relatively well educated. Uh, some years ago, the Figaro correspondent wrote about how bad uh, the French schools were now. But, and one of his battle horses was the uh, was the decline of spelling and uh, he said afterwards uh, he received 600 letters from teachers of which 200 <laughs> spelling mistakes <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> french is tricky you know you that well english is not dead easy i mean we we our spelling is designed to drive germans mad <laughs> I, I, I say to Italian students, I say this, the guy, you know, all those people who tell you they have a trick of how to learn spelling in English, they're lying. <laughs> no. Spelling and pronunciation in English, they find it fascinating. We, we, any English speaker, you know that experience where you've, you, read a book, you read a word, you never heard it for 20 years, and for 20 years you said it in one particular way, and then one day you're, you're listening to Radio 4, and you think, oh, that's, that's how, how you say it. <laughs> I remember, yeah, well, I remember, I mean, this is not really anything, but there were some words which I just couldn't, I just couldn't pronounce. One was, uh, one, I mean, what do they mean by hoodinut? Which uh, it was, who done it? <laughs> and I wasn't particularly, I was actually quite good at spelling and reading, but I, anyway. My, yeah, uh, but I, but there is that deterioration in France as well. And, there's a kind of ideological deterioration. For example, they're very wary about teaching uh, teaching anything about the Holocaust in French schools. Oh, really? Because it upsets Muslims. So... Um, Considering the French uh, so, history with... I mean, you don't want to drag up uh, Dreyfus and Vichy, etc. But, you know, you would have thought the French would have needed to be a bit more... Upfront about that—that's kind of an important issue. Culture France is the home. I, I'm not sure. I think the way the way possibly to do it, and I, when I was taught history, history ended in about 1870, mm. and that's one way to to deal with that problem and say that everything after that is politics, and we don't do politics in schools. My professor of history, Maluth, back in the day, used to say that everything that happened after 1603 was journalism. Yes. But I think that was, that was listen, I'm, I, I've taken too much of your time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to call a halt to it now on the basis that whatever happens in France, I'm sure the food and the wine are still very good. Oh, that, yes, that's true. That, that what, that's what keeps That's me. the most important thing. That's the most important thing. And, and if, I, if I know if, if I break off now, then there's a chance that I, uh, I may perhaps return on your goodwill on another occasion and to yes, go back to the subjects we have. Delighted. Had covered today but for today i want to thank our audience and i want to thank anthony daniels aka 
a Theodore Dalrymple for a, a conversation that I've enjoyed tremendously and I'm sure our listeners will too. Thank you very much, Anthony. Have a good day and stay safe in quarantine over there. Uh, if, I have no choice. The virus won't <laughs> get through the door at you. <laughs> yes. And we're out. Thank bye you. Bye-bye.